This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're very pleased to note that in segment two today, we're going to speak with author David Wallachinsky. Mr. Wallachinsky has been the author or co-author of 17 books, including the enormously popular People's Almanac series. This last weekend, Parade Magazine in your Sunday paper published its annual review of the world's 10 worst dictators. You may have some thoughts yourself on who the world's worst political leaders are. Well, Mr. Wolachinsky will explain uh, who he picked and why in segment two. All right, let us begin the program as we like to do with on this date in history, which is February 15th. On February 15th in the year 339 B.C., the Greek philosopher Socrates was sentenced to death. Socrates, of course, was famous for questioning everything and everyone. He had such a reputation for his relentless pursuit of this that uh, the science writer Isaac Asimov once said, well, the people of Athens took it for as long as they could and then finally forced him to drink poison. Which may be a bit unfair. On this date in the year 1758, mustard made its debut in America. It was manufactured in a German section of Philadelphia. On February 15, 1879, the United States Congress allowed women lawyers to argue cases before the Supreme Court, which was mighty big of them, don't you think? And on this date in 1965, Canada first flied its new national flag adorned with a prominent red maple leaf. And on a much sadder note on that very same day, Nat King Cole, the American swing-era jazz pianist and legendary singer, passed away in Santa Monica, California. I remember as a kid, my parents coming home pleased to note that they'd, they'd been in the uh, St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco and, and into the elevator had come Nat King Cole. He was a great pianist and an even greater singer and was familiar even to a kid like me from his many appearances on network television. We have not seen the likes of him uh, again in the last 42 years. It's a Barnum and Bailey world, just as funny as it can be. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me. Our quote of the day, and actually we're going to have several quotes of the day. We're going to take them from David Wallachinsky's The 20th Century. Said the former Secretary of State and, and, and business person, George P. Schultz, I learned in business that you had to be very careful when you told somebody that's working for you to do something because the chances were very high he'd do it. In government, you don't have to worry about that. A protest button from the 1991 First Gulf War was quoted noting, we're going to war to defend people who won't let women drive? John Wynne Tyson, the Times Literary Supplement, was quoted as saying, The wrong sort of people are always in power because they would not be in power if they were not the wrong sort of people. Let's go back to H.L. Mencken. He said at one point, Under democracy, one party always devotes its chief energies to trying to prove that the other party is unfit to rule, and both commonly succeed and are right. The cartoonist and wit Jules Pfeiffer once noted that Christ died for our sins. Dare we make his martyrdom meaningless 
by not committing them? And finally, said Canadian John Robert Colombo, Canada could have enjoyed English government, French culture, and American know-how. Instead, it ended up with English know-how, French government, and American culture. Our statistic of the day comes from Money Magazine, which noted that 39% of high schoolers say they expect to be millionaires by age 40. Currently, 1.2% of American adults are millionaires. And in an addendum statistic of the day, we note that UC Davis was ranked 10th among national universities in a Washington Monthly Guide that, quote, asks not what colleges can do for you, but what colleges are doing for the country, unquote. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for advocacy groups when, in the wake of some Super Bowl advertising, a subsidiary of the candy maker Mars Inc. scrapped a commercial and related web videos for its Snickers bars that gay rights organizations had called homophobic. The commercial depicted two men who react cartoonishly after inadvertently kissing. The company's website featured an alternate ending in which the men violently beat each other. Last month, we had a bad week for animal rights activists when the governor of Idaho, C.L. Butch Otter, spoke in support of the public hunting of all but 100 of the state's gray wolves after the federal government removes their protection under the Endangered Species Act. Said Governor Butch Otter, I'm prepared to bid for that first ticket to shoot a wolf. And last week was an ugly week for the U.S.-China trade balance after a Starbucks coffee shop in Beijing's Forbidden City may be forced to close because of the efforts of one television anchorman after Rui Chenggang wrote on his blog that Starbucks was a, quote, affront to Chinese culture, unquote. A half million Chinese signed an online petition demanding the shop's closure. Officials now say they may shut down the Starbucks. Ah, but don't worry. I'm sure we'll find something the Chinese will buy from us. Uh, but nuclear secrets? Here's an item from the Only in America file, perhaps with a question mark. A woman who told police she'd been raped was jailed for two days after officers found an old warrant accusing her of failing to pay restitution for a 2003 theft arrest. This happened in Tampa, Florida, and was reported by Phil Davis in the AP. The woman, a 21-year-old college student, was released last week after her attorney reported her plight to the local media. The woman was apparently in Tampa uh, for Gasparilla, an annual pirate-themed parade that draws thousands of people. She was reportedly walking to her car after the event when a man pulled her behind a building and raped her. She reported the rape, and officers took her to a rape crisis center where she was given the first of two doses of the morning-after pill. But later, while riding in a patrol car trying to locate the crime scene, 
Police found a warrant stemming from a 2003 juvenile arrest for grand theft and burglary. It said she owed $4,585. Police then put the victim behind bars, and according to her attorney, a jail worker refused to give her a second dose of the morning-after contraceptive pill because of the worker's religious convictions. Said Jennifer Dritt, executive director of the Florida Council Against Sexual Violence, in something of an understatement, This event, quote, makes people think law enforcement doesn't have a victim-centered approach, unquote. And from the not only in America file, we have the following from the New York Times. For a price, anyone in Germany can name a storm or weather system. The fee to name a high-pressure system is $385. More common low-pressure systems only cost $256 payable to the German Weather Service. And speaking of uh, commercials that aired during the Super Bowl, we were quite tickled to note uh, after the show last week that the Bites section of the Sacramento News and Review sounded off a similar note to what we had regarding uh, Kevin Federline's appearance uh, on a commercial where he's uh, pretending he's a rap star, where he's daydreaming about being a rap star. Said Bites, it was easily the Super Bowl's best commercial, and K-Fed's self-effacing act instantly transformed him from Never Was to Super Bowl 41's biggest winner. You can apparently check out the video at www.nationwide.com. And in talking about Molly Ivins, we noted that uh, Melinda Welsh had a nice article about uh, Molly Ivins' appearance in Davis back in 1995. She appeared as a UCD distinguished speaker, and Melinda's husband had volunteered to drive Molly to and from her destinations throughout the day. Melinda noted in the article that for some reason her husband hadn't offered to do the same for Dick Cheney when he appeared uh, the month before. Melinda Welsh described taking a table near the door at Cafe California, which is now Aeoli in Davis, uh, where Molly Ivins proceeded to buy rounds of Heineken's. I'm the mainstream one here tonight, she said. Always make the mainstream pay. Anyway, we refer you to the rest of the article uh, online at www.newsreview.com. And another item from the Sacramento News and Review, um, which we thought was curious after we lambasted the U.S. government's use of mercenaries in Iraq. We called them contractors, but of course they're really mercenaries. The News and Review published a guest comment by Andy Redson, described as a Sacramento malcontent and troublemaker who has worked in the security field for over 12 years. His commentary was titled, In Defense of Mercenaries. Mr. Redson tries to draw a comparison to what's going on in Iraq to uh, a police officer operating outside a liquor store to ensure order at no cost to the store owner, which he posed as a ridiculous idea which he then segued into the question, why should taxpayers be willing to tolerate using U.S. military personnel to guard private interests in Iraq? Well, one objection, Mr. Redson, would be the fact that the private contractors are costing 15 times as much. A second major objection might be the fact that these men in arms are strutting about in Iraq without good supervision by either military or police chain of command. The commentary closed with, Keep it simple. Mercenaries of all sorts, from guards to soldiers, serve the private interests. Don't expect them to be public servants, and don't expect public servants like police officers and U.S. military to protect private enterprise. In today's world, we need both. 
Well, we at Radio Parallax don't see the value of hiring uh, very high-priced mercenaries to do the job that, uh, you know, that military forces and local forces should be doing. Of course, one of the great problems of the Iraqi war is that we've dismantled all local police forces. It was part of, quote, debathification, unquote. And we have to again uh, pose the question of what the plan is over in Iraq. There's talk of sending more soldiers over. I had a chance to speak with someone recently returned from the war in Iraq. Someone I'll refer to only as X. And what Soldier X agreed in our private conversation was that they are on patrol driving around over there serving as target practice for the insurgents. When X was asked uh, what X thought the plan was over there, X replied, there's no plan. We want to thank Lyra Halpern for her email referring to the No More Broken Hearts rally in Manhattan Beach, California which included participants from the Iraq Veterans Against the War. I'd like to quote from 24-year-old Jason Lemieux, who was a member of IVAW and has completed four tours of duty in Iraq as a Marine. He said, quote, We can't win over there because soldiers are not given a clear mission. We're fighting an urban war in the middle of a civilian population, unquote. Describing a, a mission uh, in a town on the Syrian border, said Lemieux, quote, Our mission for a 210-day combat mission was to, quote, kill all those who needed to be killed and save those who needed to be saved, unquote. That was it. That was the guidance we got for seven months. And uh, speaking of the war in Iraq, it appears that there's a lot of dithering going on in Washington about whether funding will actually be cut off for the 21,000-troop uh, surge desired by the Bush administration. Democrats seem reluctant to take the bull by the horns and instead want to pass a non-binding resolution condemning the action. And while conservatives uh, on the blogosphere and, and in Washington and wherever are uh, trying to divert attention from all this by focusing on, uh, on, uh, on Nancy Pelosi's plane request, which is much ado about just about nothing, while uh, these, uh, these conservatives are hard at work generating smoke, the Department of Defense Inspector General's office published a report noting that former Undersecretary of Defense Douglas Fife and his staff, while doing nothing illegal or unauthorized, had inappropriately produced, quote, alternative, unquote, intelligence reports that wrongly concluded that Saddam Hussein's regime had cooperated with al-Qaeda. This is kind of a big deal. Back in the fall of 2002, we were trying to cover this story, and so were a lot of other people, and not getting very far with it in most of the media. Writing about this report for The Nation magazine, Robert Dreyfus noted, In a stunning indictment of the administration's chicanery, Pentagon Inspector General Thomas Gimbel slammed the super-secret predecessor of organizations of the Office of Special Plans for, quote, disseminating, unquote, Alternative Intelligence Assessments on the Iraq and Al-Qaeda Relationship. The OSP, of course, was the operation inside the Pentagon which Douglas Fife headed. Noted Pentagon Inspector General Gimbel, its actions were inappropriate and its conclusions were not supported by the available intelligence. Said Dreyfus, make no mistake, the phrase, not supported by the available intelligence, is bureaucraties for a live-filled pile of crap. 
which Dreyfus said was the most straightforward way to describe the intelligence product produced by the OSP, which was run directly out of the office of then Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Douglas Fife. Fife is a hardcore neoconservative with intimate ties to the Israeli far right. General Tommy Franks referred to him as, quote, the effing stupidest guy on the face of the earth, unquote. The New York Times, in a scathing editorial, ridiculed Fife and also pointed the finger at his boss, then Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz. Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday took some quotes from uh, Fife's PowerPoint presentation where it was claimed that intelligence indicates cooperation in all categories. This is between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. A mature symbiotic relationship. Wallace referred to an alleged meeting between 9-11 hijacker Mohammed Atta and an Iraqi agent in Prague in April of 2001, an event described as a known contact. Said Chris Wallace, Mr. Fyth, all of that, all of that was wrong, wasn't it? Responded Fyth, no, not at all. Intelligence is very sketchy, and it's always open to interpretation. But noted the nation, after Fyth's OSP concocted its cock and bull story about Iraq, they took it over to the CIA and presented it to a team of professional analysts. George Tennant listened to Fyth's presentation on August 15, 2002, asked his staff to stick around after the briefers departed, and the CIA and Defense Intelligence Agency reviewed Fyth's conclusions. They promptly disagreed with more than half of it. The CIA pointedly offered then to footnote Fyth's report with strident objections. Fyth's team said, thanks anyway, then promptly set up an appointment to brief the White House without including so much as one CIA footnote. Concluded the nation, bizarre as all this is, it's important to remember that because of these lies, America went to war against a country that had never attacked the United States, had no weapons of mass destruction, and then had no ties to Al-Qaeda or 9-11. But noted Robert Dreyfus, if fool me once was the Bush administration's reams of faked intelligence about Iraq, fool me twice is the administration's shameless effort to shift the blame for American casualties in Iraq from the Sunni-led resistance to a make-believe threat from Iran and allied Shiite militias. And in fact, this last weekend, after weeks of internal debate, senior U.S. military officials put on the table their first public evidence for the contentious assertion that Iran supplies Shiite extremist groups in Iraq with some of the most lethal weapons in the war. The Economist has a B-2 bomber on the cover with the headline, Next Stop Iran? Question mark. We, of course, will continue to follow developments in that area with you, dear listener. Let's take a short break and come back and speak with David Walachinsky whose article on the world's 10 worst dictators appeared in the most recent edition of Parade magazine. I'm Douglas Everett, you're listening to Radio Parallax.
We're very pleased to welcome to the program today an author who's mastered the art, providing the public with data that broadens the mind while it provides absorbing reading. I don't mind admitting I've been a fan of David Wallachinsky for decades. Mr. Wallachinsky's book, The 20th Century, is a reference we think everyone should have on their home bookshelves. But we feel the same way about numerous works he's co-authored, including The People's Almanac, Volumes 1 to 3, The Book of Lists, Volumes 1 to 3, and What Really Happened to the Class of 65. This weekend, Parade Magazine published Mr. Wallachinsky's annual review of the world's 10 worst dictators. We're honored to have him join us today to talk about this grim but important listing. David Wallachinsky, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. I'm sure a lot of listeners who read their Sunday paper this weekend would like to learn more about some of these infamous leaders. So can we start by noting that you have a book out with exactly those details, titled Tyrants, the World's 20 Worst Living Dictators. And this is very available, is it not? Uh, Yes, it is. I certainly hope so, at any rate. (laughs) It it does go into more detail, including a bit of the history of each of the countries, so you can see how it could develop into a dictatorship. Yes, I would like to add uh, that uh, you know the context you provide for each country's dictators very illuminating and, and very useful to explain how they got where they uh, they are today. Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I you know I feel that there's basically three kinds of dictators. One are the uh, inherited dictators, like uh, King Abdul of Saudi Arabia, Kim Jong Il of North Korea. Uh, then you have what I call the you know the corporate dictators. Those are uh, men who slowly rise in power, uh, either in a military dictatorship or in a one-party state. Um, These are like the communist dictators. Hu Jintao of China would be a perfect example. And then there's the dictators that we hear the most about, which I call the entrepreneur dictators. And these are the ones who uh, build their dictatorship out of nothing, like uh, uh, Muammar al-Qaddafi of Libya or Fidel Castro of Cuba. Well, some of these men, and and they all are men, are are U.S. adversaries. Some are alleged to be among our best friends. Uh, A few few are neither of those. But but before we talk about individuals, can you give us a brief rundown of the whole whole top ten this year? Well, I would say, yeah, well, you put it quite well, that some of them are our allies and some of them aren't. And that's because even though we like to think that our country always supports human rights and democracy, um, when it comes to, uh, when we come up against economic needs or desires, they usually uh, take first place over uh, human rights. Consequently, we have people like Hu Jintao of China, I have number four on the list, and King Abdul of Saudi Arabia, number five. And as you said, there's also uh, some people who we, we work against, uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei of Iran, Kim Jong-il of uh, North Korea, and then there's some dictators that we just ignore completely. Well, we have limited time today, of course. I'd like then maybe to focus in on your top five choices, uh, starting with number one, Omar al-Bashir of Sudan. What, what makes him the worst of the worst? Uh, Omar al-Bashir, Sudan is the country that includes Darfur, uh, which gets a certain amount of press because of uh, you know, the tragedy happening there. Uh, at least 200,000 people killed. Um, you know, there, in, throughout the country of uh, Sudan, there's more than five million people who've been forced out of their homes. And uh, what I find frustrating is that uh, you never, you almost never hear about Omar al-Bashir, the man who's in charge of these uh, these massacres. Uh, so I think he should get more press. Yes, I've noticed that that, that uh, this Darfur matter is in the, almost the daily papers, but. Uh... 
Uh, Bashir really is the prime mover in this, is he not? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, a certain amount of the killing is done by a militia group called the Janjaweed. Um, and this is a tactic which Bashir has used previously in other parts of Sudan, which is that uh, he funds and arms and supports an independent, a supposedly independent militia. That way, when the outside world uh, you know, tries to criticize him, he says, well, it's not really us, it's not our army, but of course it is really. Well, the man you've chose as the second worst is, is very well known to Americans, Kim Jong-il of North Korea. You point out that though he's somewhat accurately portrayed as a bizarre figure, he's nevertheless a, a wily politician. Can you tell us how he became this oddity of a hereditary leader in a communist state? Well, th this is the first time that in the communist government uh, leadership passed from father to son. Uh, Kim Jong-il's father, Kim Il-sung, was the original dictator of, of North Korea. And I think the key to uh, uh, the North Korean dictatorship is that it isn't really a communist country. It's more like uh, the ancient Confucianism, where you were supposed to honor the and trust 100% the leader who will take care of everything for you. And because it was the communists, in, uh, particularly from the Soviet Union, who put Kim, uh, Kim Il-sung in power and the Chinese communists who put him in power, um, he was forced to take on this idea of communism, but really his, the, the, the form of tyranny there in North Korea goes way, way back before the creation of communism. Well, can you talk about Kim's nukes and, and his repression of the North Korean people? There's other dictators who have more advanced uh, nuclear power, like, like the Chinese and, and uh, General Musharraf of Pakistan. Uh, but the power that Kim Jong-il has over his own people is unprecedented or you know, un unparalleled in the world. There is absolutely no connection with the outside world for the North Korean people. Um, they have radios in your home have to be set to the government channel. The tuners are set to the government channels, and there are member, you know, representatives of the government will come into people's homes to make sure that nobody is tampered with their radio. That's just one example of how controlling Kim Jong-il is. Well, third on your list, the Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran. Can you explain, first of all, why he's Iran's real leader, not the man we read so much about lately, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad? People don't realize that uh, the way the Iranian constitution works is that uh, even though there is an allegedly elected government, though it's really phony elections, that that elected government has no control over the uh, military in Iran, the nuclear program in Iran, and they can't even pass laws because above the elected government is an unelected uh, guardian council of 12 religious leaders, mullahs, headed by the Ayatollah Khamenei. And they chose, they really chose... Ahmadinejad to be their uh, president because he serves uh, as a lightning rod for criticism from the rest of the world. So that if he says something and, and it works, then, then the Ayatollah Khamenei and the others can take uh, uh, credit for it. But if, you know, like this nuclear saber rattling that Ahmadinejad does, it doesn't play so well, then the Ayatollah Khamenei can step in and say no. Uh, you, you've got to calm down. That's not what we stand for. So it's like kind of a good cop, bad cop. And uh, they also chose uh, Ahmadinejad to be the leader because he comes from a humble background, unlike the religious of mullahs who uh, actually run the country, who come from elite families. Even though I've listed them as the third worst dictator, 
it's a terrible idea to bomb Iran. Because Iran is a country where there's, I would say, two-thirds of the population doesn't like their government. And if you bomb them, or if we bomb them, you're going to just silence the entire opposition. Because when a foreign power bombs your country, everybody gathers around the leader no no matter how much they hate them. You did mention in the book, which I was interested to learn, that Iran had opposed the Taliban in Afghanistan from the moment it took power and criticized our supposed allies, Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, for supporting that regime. And that despite that common ground, perhaps here with the U.S., the Iranian reformers were quite dismayed when George W. Bush called Iran part of the axis of evil. So in many ways, it seems we help some of these conservatives sometimes. The the U.S. invasion of Iraq was like a dream come true for the the dictatorship of Iran, because keep in mind that Iran had fought an eight-year war with Saddam Hussein, and uh, just one of the most awful wars since World War II in terms of the number of people who died, and they couldn't get rid of Saddam Hussein, even though uh, the majority of the people in Iraq were Shiites, just like the people in Iran. So when uh, we invaded Iraq and overthrew Saddam Hussein, this was just just, you know, handing a gift to the Iranian dictatorship because it got rid of their most hated enemy, Saddam Hussein, and it put in power, through majority rule, a Shiite majority, just like the Shiites in Iran. From the Iranian point of view, American foreign policy uh, the last few years has been bizarre. Indeed. We're speaking with author David Walachinsky. His annual list of the world's 10 worst dictators appeared this weekend in Parade magazine. All right, the the three men we've been discussing uh, so far have not been leaders the U.S. is friendly with, but the next two are. Uh, I think that few Americans, really, can probably name the man who's been leading China for a while now, but he's young and will be around for quite a while. Can you uh, you brief us on Hu Jintao of China? Well, Hu Jintao is the head of the Chinese Communist Party, and he uh, was a man at the right place at the right time with the right friends, which is to say that there came a point where the Chinese communists decided that they needed younger people. And at almost every stage of his career, Hu Jintao has been the youngest person, the youngest provincial governor, the youngest uh, you know, vice chairman, etc., etc., etc. And he has consolidated his power. He has the three most powerful positions in China. Um, and you know, even the United States, even though we do huge business with China, and we're tremendously dependent on China for our, our economy, the United States State Department every year issues a human rights report on each country in the world. And our own State Department lists 22 different areas in which China abuses human rights. Uh, and this includes forced abortions, forced labor, torture, etc. So there's a real schizophrenia in our, our attitude toward uh, our government's attitude toward China. And I might say that, you know, what one thing that's particularly disturbing about China and the Chinese dictatorship is that in the late 1970s, they made this decision, the Chinese communists, to open up their economy while keeping brutal suppression of freedom of suppre- uh, uh, expression and human rights. And it worked. The, the outside world bought this, the, you know, the United States. Uh, Europe, we want to do business with them, and so we, we turn a blind eye to their human rights abuses. Well, now, that is known in the world of dictators as the Chinese model, and it is being copied all over the world. Um, you open up your economy, but you don't open up freedom of expression or democracy. 
And I would even predict that that's probably what's going to happen in the next couple of years in Cuba. Yes, I find it fascinating to, that we take the opposite tack with Cuba. Uh, we claim that we need to shun them, and yet U.S. is claiming that trade with China is promoting freedom from citizens there, but it just hasn't materialized. Oh, yeah, right. Well, let's keep in mind that the, you know, the Cubans don't have much that we need. Sugar, you know, that's about it. And whereas the Chinese have cheap labor, uh, a huge consumer market, and they own a lot of our national debt. And so uh, it's, it's, it's a bit cynical, this idea that somehow we, if we keep at it, they're going to open up uh, and, and become democratic. It doesn't look like that's the way it's going. Yeah, in China's case, it's not just the U.S. government sort of turning a blind eye for repression, but you point out in your book, U.S. companies have actually aided China's use of censorship. Well, certainly in the, in the world of the Internet, you know, and some of the countries are now feeling guilty and apologizing. But the Chinese have set up uh, uh, extreme censorship of the Internet, blocking search engines so that you can't look up the word democracy, uh, for example. And once again, they've been aided by American companies. And once again, the Chinese have been teaching other dictatorships how to censor the Internet. Well, in, Sa in Saudi Arabia, King Abdullah heads a ruling clan that grants no freedom of worship, no freedom of speech, no representative government, and no freedom of assembly. Uh, as you note in the book, they don't even bother to hold fake elections. Yet right. uh, the Saudis seem almost immune to criticism here. How, how are they doing this? PR? Uh, it's, to a certain extent, it's PR, but it's even more than that. It's called oil. They have the largest oil um, uh, reserves in the world. You know, and, uh, you know I, I give the, the example I would give is, you know, I have number five, worst dictator in the world, uh, King Abdul of Saudi Arabia. Number six, General Franchway of Burma, who we've never heard of. Well, you know, Burma, which is a large country, uh, has an awful, awful military dictatorship. But all they have that, that we need is teak. And so the United States, both under President Clinton and under President Bush, has uh, instituted a very effective uh, and complete economic boycott of Burma. Whereas we, you know, with Saudi Arabia, which has oil, um, President Bush has gone out of his way to be photographed holding hands with King Abdullah. Well, I'm telling you, if Burma had oil and Saudi Arabia had nothing but teak, our leaders would be holding hands with the Burmese generals and we would be treating uh, the Saudi royal family as the pariahs that they should be because they have an extremely repressive and uh, you know, viciously anti-Christian and anti-Jewish uh, uh, government, uh, particularly in their, uh, the textbooks that they use in schools. And keep in mind that in Saudi Arabia, it is illegal for a Saudi citizen to follow a religion other than Islam. Yes, yes, and we also should probably remind people that it was 15 Saudis that attacked the U.S. on September 11th. The mastermind was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, a Saudi, al-Qaeda's godfather, of course, Osama bin Laden. Yet after September 11th, the Bush administration let 140 Saudis fly home unquestioned uh, by the FBI. It's quite a striking contrast to, you know, the literal hand-holding in a photo op. No kidding. <laughs> yes, you, you put it quite well. <laughs> Well, at the close of your book, you, you thank your co-authors of 1980's The Book of List Number 2 for letting you include a list of the world's most repressive governments. Uh, since I have a copy of that, I took a look at it, and, and many of that original list, uh, like Chile, Bulgaria, Uruguay, Argentina, and South Africa, really have come quite a long way since 1980, and I imagine that uh, such places must give you hope for nations currently under bad dictators. 
Well, exactly, because back then when I did that first list, there were dictatorships all over South America and in Europe. Now um, there are no more dictatorships in South America, and in Europe we only have one left, which is Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus. Uh, so I do have hope, and you know, in Africa in particular, even though some of the worst dictators are in Africa, there's really been spreading democracy in much of that continent. Well, many Americans are frustrated that our government supports tyrants if it suits its purposes, and we'll, we'll even put them in power and keep them there sometimes. Uh, what organizations do you recommend people seek out if they wish to affect some changes in these repressive regimes? I would suggest that they start paying attention uh, and uh, reading about joining Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Reporters Without Borders. And I would also, uh, you know, in my utopian mind, uh, I would say that a long-term solution is to create what I would call a council of democracies, in which you have to have an actual democracy, have to have freedom of expression to join. There's about 117 countries like that right now. And those countries could then be encouraged to uh, promote trade amongst themselves. Uh, and I think in the long run, uh, that would be uh, an effective way of getting rid of not all, but many uh, uh, dictatorships. Well, th this feature in Parade Magazine has been running for, I think, five years now. That's right. I, I noticed that it's generated some follow-up questions about Hu Jintao and last year's parade. It, do you get a sense that public opinion moves against some of these men after you've illustrated how bad they've behaved? Uh, to a certain extent, but and then I also get a lot of emails of, you know, people complaining, our dictator is much worse than you <laughs> said he was. He, he shouldn't be 18, he should be 10. I get a lot of that from the Ethiopians in, in America, also the Chinese and uh, Cuban Americans. And I actually, I dropped Fidel Castro from the list this year because last July he, he turned over power. He's no longer in power. That's the only reason he's not on the list. One final question. What happened to your high school pal and co-author of What Really Happened to the Class of 65, Michael Medved? <laughs> he's just swung to the right and off the, off the cliff. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, I was on Michael's show uh, recently. For, <laughs> I'd never heard his show before. And I was a guest on his show uh, talking about dictators and, uh, and about George Bush, actually. Uh -huh. And, uh, well, you know, Michael, um, he took a turn to the right. And if I can be a bit cynical about it... Um, you know, being a, a, a radio talk show host and a spokesman for the right pays a lot better than, uh, you know, being a spokesman for the left. <laughs> and uh, he's doing very well, Michael. I imagine you didn't agree on Bush. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Parade Magazine just published our guest's annual review of the world's 10 worst dictators. We at Radio Parallax highly recommend that you read the book that preceded it, Tyrants, the World's 20 Worst Living Dictators. We'd like to thank you very much for speaking with us, David Walachinsky. Thank you very much. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break.
All right, we are back. Uh, news item from The Economist magazine regarding uh, world's worst dictator number four. Paying a visit to world's worst dictator number one. Evidently, Hu Jintao is in Africa, a place he knows well, having visited it before. Noted The Economist, all over Africa, a commodity-hungry China is winning friends by building roads, ports, and railways. He will be especially welcomed in Sudan. China not only buys about 80% of the oil exports that are making parts of Sudan rich, it also shields Sudan from being held to account in the UN Security Council for the Darfur killings. Omar el-Bashir will be especially welcoming to the Chinese because their policy is not to interfere in Africa's politics. Noted in the magazine in the case of Darfur, this liberal Chinese stance is being exploited as a license to kill. Magazine also noted that most of Sudan's best oil fields are in disputed areas between the north and south, and as China's economic interests and dependencies spread, it's going to have to learn the need to invest in peace as well as pipelines. Sometimes that will require it to put unwelcome pressure on its trading partners. The magazine noted that this uh, may allow Hu Jintao to put some pressure on Omar al-Bashir. Said the magazine, Mr. Hu has a rare opportunity to combine self-interest with statesmanship. He should grab it. Giving Hu Jintao and the, and the Chinese Communist Party's uh, record in China, I, we have to say that doesn't seem terribly likely. But as the magazine points out, having peace does protect your pipelines, so uh, perhaps in this case, good will come out of economic self-interest. And since we're talking today about uh, the horrible effects that bad government, uh, tyrants, dictators running countries can have on their populace, we need to now continue with Dr. Andrew Nangalama, who spoke with us last week about his native Uganda. In the wake of political chaos under Idi Amin, Dr. Nangalama had to flee the country for his life. And he's here today to tell us about what happened. Dr. Andrew Nangalama, welcome back. Thank you, sir. We, uh, we left off last week talking about uh, you having to leave the country, but let's backtrack a little bit to, to what, what you had to flee. Idi Amin was famous in the 1970s for the, uh, the turmoil that he unleashed in your homeland. Uh, I know he gained a lot of uh, international attention when he decided he was going to evict all of the Indian merchants in Uganda that had been part of the colonial system. They fulfilled a, a major role in the economy, and he sent them all packing. Yes, I mean, he gave the uh, Ugandan Asians uh, 90 days uh, to leave Uganda. He, get, he gave them a choice either to choose Uganda as a country of their primary citizenship or to go to another country where they, you know, chose to be citizens. And uh, many of the um, Ugandan Asians, uh, well, whom we call the Indians in Uganda, they were born there. Some of them were third generation. That's right. the only home they knew. They were training there, some in the universities, the businessmen. But in, initially started as maybe something that maybe was not uh, serious, but later on they realized with the killings and uh, unsafety in Uganda, the majority of people left in the panic. Well, it is portrayed in the movie, The Last King of Scotland, a very excellent uh, flick, which I know you had a chance to see. The movie ends at the point where there was much turmoil regarding the raid at Entebbe. 
Um, you described in last week's program that as a result of uh, you and other university students sort of being sort of cheering the fact that uh, that Amin had been um, thwarted, they responded with a great deal of force, airplanes, tanks at the university campus. At that time, of course, uh, people had lost hope in what liberation of the country. First of all, you could not tune on a radio and listen to any station. If you were caught uh, listening to any station on the radio outside the country, you'll be put in jail. And the people even lost their lives because of that. Wow. Even reading international newspapers were not allowed. So it's like for years now we were kept in dark. And when there was uh, a rumor that, you know, uh, the hostages who had been uh, held by Idi Amin and, uh, you know, the Palestinian terrorists, they were rescued. We all cheered up because for the first time Idi Amin had been challenged. And when he had that news, that's when he sent his military, his whole battalion, to attack the university. And I was one of the students' leaders at that time. So I was picked up, you know, I was beaten, uh, roughed up. And in the end, uh, I ended up in some facility which had the very limited medical care. And I was able to escape and uh, find my way to Uganda-Kenya border. So you, you knew right then you had to get out of the country? I had to get out of the country because I knew if when they found out what my background, where I came from, I was going to be executed. The facility where I was in the medical, medical closings, which I was helped, and then I was able to flee the, the country uh, up to Uganda-Kenya border. That's about what three three hundred miles. That's about probably two hundred miles to the border. And uh, when I go to the border, the border had uh, military and uh, all, all the bodyguards. Uh, I had to f- go through the bushes. And uh, when I went to the side of Kenya, I stood on the hill, and I looked at Uganda and nailed down. It was like freedom to me. Wow! Did you have to go to refugee camp, or how did that? What when I got in Kenya? Um, I got to some people used to having seen Ugandan refugees. I told this man who, who was a farmer that I could work for him and uh, you know I needed to raise money so that I could travel to Nairobi. Uh, he, was, he allowed me to work on the farm. I had the same clothes, same shoes. I had not changed for three weeks and I worked on the farm. Then I was able to raise just money enough to buy me a ticket on a bus to travel from up country to Nairobi. So what, well, what was in Nairobi when you when got When I there? went to Nairobi, I found uh, yes, where there were some of the churches, and I went to one of the largest churches, and uh, I just waited in the parking lot when they were coming out. I had torn clothes. I was very dirty. and not had a shower for days, and... I told them I was a Ugandan refugee, and suddenly enough, there were also some Ugandan refugees who had been in church that day. But some recognized me, and they knew me from Uganda. Wow. I was welcomed, and I was taken to uh, one of the homes uh, run by one of the churches, and um, then I was helped to go to the United Nations Refugee Program. I got interviewed, and... Um, I got assistance, and then I was uh, sent to a refugee camp. You're in a refugee camp in Kenya. How did you get to the United States? 
when I was in the refugee camp, there were some churches and some university service people who wanted to help uh, students who had been displaced from Uganda, especially the university, because the university I came from had been the, one of the most popular universities in Black uh, uh, Sub-Sahara Africa, you know. Uh, University of Makerere, that was one time the headquarters for uh, World Health Tropical Medicine, and that was a joint University of Cambridge and London. So uh, some of those people came to our assistance. Uh, I got a scholarship to come either to to go to Edinburgh to finish my veterinary school or Cambridge, and uh, I also had a scholarship through the Episcopal Church to come to California. When I came to California, I came to go to veterinary school, but I ended <laughs> up in Fresno, California. You, I should remind people, I don't know if we mentioned it last week, you were you were basically a semester away from getting your DVM. Yes, I was a semester away from getting my doctor of veterinary medicine in Uganda. And that was still an option had you gone to Scotland? Yeah, if I had gone to Scotland, which is uh, in uh, Edinburgh University, I would have completed that. But, you know, of course, I chose to come to California because it's like a new world. You know? Right. I am curious, Dr. Nangalama, you, you got a PhD, you're close to getting your DVM, but then you decided to go into medicine instead. What what led to that? I think when I got in Davis um, and I started doing my PhD work, I realized probably my research I was doing was getting more and more interesting with any relating to medicine than veterinary medicine. You, uh, you have been back home to Uganda since? I was in Uganda 2005 for the first time I took my, both to my daughters, Samali and Mkai. First time they went and uh, see what Christmas was in Uganda or in the third world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was very interesting that instead of buying gifts, which we do buy during Christmas time, we make donations to the people in the village. Well, Dr. Nangalama, it's been uh, it's been quite a story, and it's been quite a road for Uganda from Idi Amin to to the current uh, regime. Are you pretty confident the country's uh, on the right track at this point? I think it can do better, you know. And looking back, of course, having stayed in the states, uh, California is one of the best places one can ever be if you have ambition and uh, you try to work very hard. But I know uh, Uganda is a very agricultural country. It has quite a bit of human resources. Uh, we can do better. And um, I'll continue to support and help my, my country pers at personal level as much as I can. All right. Well, I know you are going to be indeed raising more money in May. So when the time comes, we'll have you back. Sure. I will come. Any help that can come by. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're speaking with Dr. Andrew Nangalama. He's currently a local physician. He earned his MD here at UC Davis as well as his PhD uh, back in the 1970s. He was a student of veterinary medicine in his home country of Uganda. All right, and in some follow-up uh, closer to home, we note that local Congressman John Doolittle uh, is still opposing wage hikes for the Marianas Islands. By way of review, the U.S. captured those islands from Japan during World War II and administered them under the United Nations mandate until 1978 when they became a U.S. Commonwealth. 
Low wages and easy immigration to the Northern Marianas from China, the Philippines, and elsewhere drew cheap labor for foreign-owned factories. They were allowed to sell their low-cost clothing, shoes, and other products with made-in-USA labels, duty-free here in the United States. Northern Marianas' 1976 Commonwealth Covenant with the U.S. government exempted the islands from federal immigration and import taxes. It also set a lower minimum wage in effort to spur economic growth for the island's 82,000 people. But uh, Nancy Pelosi's House Democrats uh, say that a just-passed minimum wage bill will be changed to cover all U.S. territories, including the Marianas Islands and American Samoa. John Doolittle, a lieutenant of Tom DeLay, uh, was using disgraced lobbyist Jack Abramoff uh, to meet with a lobbying team and find ways to block changes to minimum wage restrictions and other uh, restrictions on the Marianas Islands. In other Doolittle news, the congressman's campaign committee reported a couple weeks back that it owed the Roosevelt Republican's wife nearly $137,000 in fundraising commissions lingering on from the 2006 elections. But unfortunately for the Doolittle family, it appears that its year-end debts exceeded cash reserves by $166,000. But uh, the month before last, Doolittle said that his wife Julie would no longer be a paid fundraiser for his re-election campaigns. Doolittle said in an interview that Julie Doolittle was so upset by news reports about her 15% fundraising commissions that she decided she no longer wanted the job. Well, they're going to be paying a little bit better over in the Marianas Islands for in the, uh, in the clothing industry, so maybe Julie Doolittle can find work there. All right, and our final item for today's program, a follow-up, we did, a follow-up on our comments sometime back about Airborne a product marketed as helping you prevent illness during the cold and flu season, well, things are worse than we thought. Noted Joy Bauer on MSNBC.com, the contents of Airborne provides a mixture of vitamins, minerals, and herbs with large amounts of vitamin C and straight vitamin A. Bottom line on this, there are no credible studies to support Airborne's effectiveness. If it works at all, it's most likely due to the large amounts of vitamin C, which you can buy for a lot less money in plain pill form. If you pop a pill when you board a plane, don't expect your body to exhibit miraculous germ-repelling ability. But worse, the amount of vitamin A in the product could be downright dangerous. Each daily dose provides 100% of the daily value for straight vitamin A, the type most health experts now steer people away from. A recent study on the health benefits of taking vitamin A to smokers was terminated early when it was clear that vitamin A had a deleterious effect on the health of the participants. The package directions on Airborne say take every three to four hours up to three times a day, which is clearly a health risk when you start tallying up those vitamin A totals. This correspondent can uh, confirm that during my training in medical school, I had a patient who killed herself with mega doses of vitamin A. It took her a while to do it, but she was determined. She was admitted again and again with liver damage. She was counseled not to use vitamin A. Every time she got out, she was convinced the reason she was sick was she didn't have enough vitamin A. 
Now, she took a lot more than you, you can probably get from taking a few airborne a day, but nevertheless, uh, we agree with MSNBC, not a good idea. That's it for the show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. Our thanks go out to the distinguished author, David Wallachinsky, as well as our good friend and local physician, Dr. Andrew Nangalama. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time.